Today's episode of Speak LA, the podcast is sponsored by Actors Connection. But before we begin, one of the things we most often hear from our listeners is how hard it is to find an agent. If this is something that you are struggling with, go to ispeakla.com and download your free agent guide now. There's absolutely no shame in not having an agent, but we really want to help you get one. So go to ispeakla.com and grab your free agent guide today. Hey, Cam. Hey, Jen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm 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 so happy to see you, and I'm so happy to be doing this podcast today, this episode with Amy Brenneman. Oh, me too. She's yeah. one of my favorite actresses, and I'm so excited to have her on the show. Yeah, favorites like of all time. I know. She's so inspiring. I mean, yeah. The fact, what I'm excited about, among mm. many things, is Tell that me. today she's going to be talking about Judging Amy. Yes, which, of course. As you know, is a show that she created. I she know. Pitched, and she starred in. I know. It's the it's, dream. It's the dream. It's the dream. <laughs> and, um, and I also just have to say, I, I, I was a big fan of Private Practice. So oh, I love Private so Practice. I, I love that show. I love her in yeah. it. I love her character. I loved her in The Leftovers. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, so many things. She's just a badass all around, and it's it's really going to be inspiring and and great. I'm I'm super excited. Me too. I'm really yeah. excited. But before we talk to Amy, you mm. know that I love to talk to you a little Aww. bit. Before <laughs> <laughs> Tell me something that you love about LA. Oh. Gosh, something I love about LA. There are so many things I love about LA. You know what I was thinking this morning, though? One of the things that I that I really appreciate about LA that I think is just so fun is the way that um, when you have a meeting, like a you know meeting, like a Hollywood meeting, um, yeah. you, you always have it at these cool hang kind of places. Like I, I have a friend who, um, who's a writer who always took his meetings at Chateau Marmont or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you might meet at like intent, you know, intelligentsia or groundwork coffee or like all, all those cool coffee places. But it's, um, I don't know to like, to be sitting outside at this cool spot, you know, and, and, and as you know, Hollywood meetings, almost always, we spend the first 45 minutes talking about, our lives. And then we spend 15 minutes talking about whatever the project is. <laughs> um, and I love that, that too. So true. <laughs> yeah. But Hollywood meetings, Hollywood meetings are fun. They are fun. Yeah. I, can just, I can just see you sitting at a coffee shop right now, Jen, with the <laughs> palm trees swaying behind you. Well, you can see me because you and I have done it so many <laughs> <I> times. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. How old were you when you first came to LA? 21. Did you know anyone here? No. Which part of the city did you live in when you first arrived in LA? West Hollywood. Was anyone in your family in show business? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What was your initial impression of LA? Like that first day or week, what was your initial impression? Uh, Nature, I loved it. Um, 
my body relaxed. What was your first job in LA? It could be acting or otherwise. Uh, yeah, uh, acting on a show called Middle Ages on CBS. And if you had to sum LA up in one word, what would that word be? Surprising. Oh, that's a great word. I love that. It's perfect. Amy, thank you so much for being here. We are so excited. Yes, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Good. Um, I would love to just start by, you know, start at the beginning and just ask you when you first started getting interested in acting. Like when did, when did you know you wanted to be an actor? Uh, well, I feel like those are, um, and honestly still, it's sort of separate questions. Wanting to be an actor as in the profession of it versus feeling home in my soul. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in central Connecticut, very, I didn't know anybody. And I mean, it, it just was a million miles from, I mean, it wasn't actually a million miles. I wasn't that far from New York, but I didn't know anybody in making a living in, um, in the arts at all. I come from lawyers and judges and people with real jobs. Um, <laughs> but there was a wonderful woman who's still my friend who ran this incredible theater program in my hometown. It actually wasn't in the schools per se. It was sort of, she had her own little thing going on and the huge musicals in the summer. And I was, and hundreds of kids, I mean, basically if you wanted to be in it, you could be in it. You might be chorus number 175, which I was. Um, (laughs) I was in this production of The Music Man when I was 11 and I couldn't believe how I mean, I just felt like the soul homecoming and I didn't have a part. It wasn't like about starting my own stuff, but it was just being part of something that was so visceral and so wonderful. And I remember hugging my father. It was in the middle of August. It was really hot and humid in that central Connecticut way. (laughs) And I was sobbing. We were all crying the way theater people do on closing. (laughs) And... I was sobbing and I remember holding on to my dad and he had this white shirt on and I remember going like, oh my God, I'm crying so hard. Like his shirt is wet. And I remember thinking like, why am I crying so hard? What is this? But I look back on that now, like, you know, it's, it's finding your passion and finding your people too. So the way that program was structured is it was the anti pre-professional, you know, kid wanting an agent thing. It's like, if you had a lead in one show, you knew you'd be in the chorus the next one and supporting other people. So um, as much as I wanted to get big parts and I enjoyed that, honestly, what I really loved is, what I really loved was being a dancer. And I loved, cause I loved dancing and I loved, I just loved being part of something. Um, so that was just part of, you know, it's like some kids are into baseball. I mean, that's just kind of what I did But, you know, I always say if I had told my lawyer parents at age 17, I'm going to go be an actor, it's like, first of all, I wouldn't know how to do it. And they'd say, like, no fucking way. So I went to college. (laughs) and I went to the one college. I went to Harvard. The one college, I think, in the whole country at that point that you could not major in theater because the old guys didn't think that was important to do. But so I majored in comparative (laughs) religion, which I actually love. 
but but there was a huge vibrant theater making community and i think in a way it flourished because we didn't have any instructors like nobody told us how to do brecht so we would just do it so there was incredible freedom um and self-expression i mean and and again i ended up being part of a collective that stayed together so i always have been drawn to groups that stay together that can chew on things over time um and then after that, this is sort of a long-winded story to your or answer your thing, but but after that, we out of college, a whole bunch of us started a company called Cornerstone Theater, which is still going, which was we did site-specific community-based theater work all over the country. So even though I was technically making a living as an actor, I was also teaching and traveling, and you know, we were a self-governing thing. So all of that is to say, I didn't get an agent or a headshot until I was like 27 or 28. Um, and I don't think it really would have interested me before that. So I was, I was sort of co not cooked as an artist, but I don't think you're ever cooked as an artist, but you know, the whole, I, I just was very um, weirdly ballsy, confident in what interested me, what didn't. Um, I had been working on the fringes basically and had, mixed feelings about dominant culture, which I still do. You know, it's interesting the way that you started this and talking about it being something that connected to your soul. And um, I really love that you said that because it, it sounds like that has been where you come from throughout your career is coming from that soul-centered approach, which I think leads to the happiness of creating. And it's a very different way of thinking about it than thinking about the business side, which I think is in the industry, which is, which is, I think where actors often um, hit their heads a little bit <laughs> in a wall because it's not as connected to the soul. Um, and I think that's really, that's such a, an in, that you had that from such a young age, that that's the, the place that you were coming from. It, it, it feels like it's such a place of empowerment. It's home, yeah. I mean, and I, I mean, I'm so, I mean, listen, I think that, that people have different vocations, obviously. And I think that a network executive um, or a programmer has to think about the business in a certain way and business models. Um, I don't think artists should spend too much time thinking about that because ultimately what we do is create the new thing and the new thing is not yet represented in culture. So if we spend mm. too much time ourselves into what exists, um, first of all, for me, it's not, it's sort of soul sucking, but it's actually not the product. You know, if we're, if we're an assembly line, you know, even thinking about it as a business, my job is to create the new ideas and the new stuff. So I, I'm not about, you know, marketing and programming. They, they can think about how it fits into the marketplace. I can, and I can help. I don't have to be obstinate about it, but that's actually not what I'm being hired to do. I love that. That's so, that's such a freeing thought. <laughs> it's, it's such a like relief yeah. to think about it that way. Um, because then you're not boxed in to these ideas of, you know, it has to be this way. I, I love that. Um, well, and A, things are changing all the time with streaming and stuff, but also as a, you know, right. I also produce a cast, so I know what it is to be on the other side. And if it's like in any relationship, if you are, if the actor comes in and auditions 
and is giving me what they think I want. It's like, I don't even know what I want. But if they come in and are just utterly themselves, and this happens a lot too, and it's happened to me as an actor, it's like, they may or may not get the job because of whatever, but always it's like, I'm gonna remember that person. It's like, oh, they were fucking awesome. You know, if they didn't fit into that thing, but they just are so confident and uh, frankly are a person that I would enjoy spending time with <laughs> rather than a person yeah. that's sucking up, to, you know? Yeah. We hear that I, I a lot, actually. You, it's, it, yeah. We hear that a lot about... Oh, go ahead, Jen. Sorry. No, you c- continue what you're saying. I think you're going to say what I'm going to say, so go. Okay. Sorry, we're, we're, <laughs> we're switching a little bit here. I know. I know. Um, it's sort of like, oh, this internet stuff is it's not always fun. Um, <laughs> we, I was just going to say that the word confidence comes up a lot when we do these interviews. And to me, it's become almost this uh, exciting question that I get to ask our guests in terms of how you would define confidence. Um, And not just how you would define it, but, you know, how you would, maybe the one tip that you would give an actor who is not there, you know, they're faking it till they make it, but they haven't quite gotten to that place of confidence um, of knowing that what they bring to the room is unique and um, that that's the place they need to come from. So I'd love to hear, you know, what, what is that when you talk about confidence, what is that exactly? And what, what's one tip you can give an actor who, who's striving for that, trying to build that? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, I think I used to feel that and this, I think goes with, um, with probably human development and maturation. I used to think it was like confidence was like, here's my idea and I'm going to fight for it. And da, 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 da. And now I think honestly, whether it's like talking about the internet or talking about a script, I feel I'm most, I, I am my most confident when I go like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. I don't understand <laughs> the plot. You know, I, I was hired on this movie and I'm actually taking over for somebody. And it's like, I'm not that good with plot. Like I'm really good with behavior, with dialogue, with, you know, relationship, but this is like plotty. And um, so I got on the phone with the director and he's like, any questions? I was like, I don't totally get what happens. When I say that and a flip side of that too is, um, you know, one thing that's happened as I've gotten older, and I see this, my husband's a director, uh, producer, but it, but he directs other people's material and I act other people's material and we also write our own. But when I'm acting somebody else's material, and this this would come up when I was doing the show Private Practice with Shonda Rhimes, because I, I um, would read a script and I quote unquote didn't like it or I didn't think, oh, I don't like this for my character, blah, blah, blah. But you know, I really honored her as the writer. And I would say to her, like, I'm not totally getting what you, what were you trying to do with the script? And I'm not sure if I totally get it. And then she would say, oh, I think Violet X, Y, and Z. And I would say half the time I'd say like, oh, now I get it. Okay. Now I had to do it. And then half the time I would say, God, I didn't, that's not what came through with what I read. And then sometimes she would say, oh, I'll make it more clear. So it's like, what is the story that you're trying to tell? And let me help you service that. And I see my husband does that so beautifully with rather than like, I'm going to put my stamp on it. It's more like, what is, it's like a baby. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It's gestating. And how can I help serve it? Um, feels very relaxed and confident and playful Um and and I think with the confidence of like it doesn't have to be my idea. I mean that that's makes me a better collaborator. 
I love that. I love that. I, I, I would love to jump to, um, well, I'd love to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is, I love that idea again about the artist, you know, that we need to be sort of thinking ahead of things and not, not just kind of repeating. So you definitely did that um, when you created your own show. And I'd, I'd love to talk about that a little bit, um, especially because that's something that actors are, you know, now it's very in vogue and actors are being told, you know, create your own stuff, write your own stuff. Like it's, it's a, it's a big thing, but I don't think it was, you know, 10, even five years ago, maybe. And you, you really did it before it was. In fact, I, I'm, I'm curious because when I was first starting out, you know, 20 years ago, we were told don't create your own thing. Like it's, it's, it's sort of frowned upon, like either you're an actor or you're a writer or you're a director. Like if you, if you try to be everything, it's, they, they don't like that so much. So I love, you know, to use your term, this sort of ballsy confidence um, of, of doing that. And I'd love to just, I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but I'd love to hear uh, what that was like and, and how you came to that and the steps and the obstacles, if, if you'd share that. Yeah. I mean, I think when I did it, I think it, I, comedians were doing it, you know, so that wasn't that unusual. Mm. So you get mm -hmm. or you get, but not so much an hour. Um, and not so much, like I wasn't a name, right. So a Roseanne or, a you know, everybody, Raymond, everybody's Raymond, like they right. built it around in comedy. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, basically it it, it came from, um, well, first of all, it's a ton of work. I really don't recommend it. <laughs> um, I had two children during that. I had to gestate two children. So um, it really, I never honestly ever want to do it again. But, you know, I did it for six years. <laughs> um, but I don't know if you want to include that. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, I guess, I guess it's funny telling my story in the way that I, I just did. I So coming from... From my theater collective, I really knew what it was like to to be a fully dimensional uh, per collaborator and fully dimensional character, right? And so what happened was, um, and it might be different now. I hope it is different, but you know, between NYPD Blue and Heat and amazing things, but I kept realizing like I have to. These characters are not as smart as me, and they're not, and they're and they're the the love interest, which is awesome. I mean, if you're gonna have a love interest, why not have Bob De Niro? Like, yay. <laughs> But um, I started thinking like, wait a minute, I, I know I myself and I, the women that I love are sexy and vulnerable and smart and dumb, you know, and mature and immature. And like, I just wanted, it wasn't even really want to be the star. I just want to be all the things that I am and that most of the people I love are. So it was my mother's, my fucking mother's idea, you know? So my mother was in the at <laughs> Harvard Law School where she met my dad and was a compadre of, of Ruth's. Um, and then she was put on, she was the second female judge in the state of Connecticut. She became a judge in the late sixties when I was a baby or toddler. And so I grew up with the mother as a judge. And I, and so my, when I started getting into this, my mom kept saying like, why aren't, she loved Law and Order and I found Law and Order super boring because there's no character. I don't know, I never really watched it. <laughs> but she was like, why isn't there Law and Order about juvenile justice? And and she said that to me and I was doing movies and never listened to my mother and stuff. And then she, uh, <laughs> she had a birthday, I think it was her 70th birthday and I just got married and Brad and I made her a happy birthday video. And we sat in the Harvard or the Hartford court and lawyers and social workers and probation officers and sheriffs and stenographers and all these people came in and said, you know, we love your mom and blah, blah, blah. 
And I had done enough TV to know like, oh, she's right. This is, I haven't, I haven't known for environment. Like it, again, no nose for plot. Cool <laughs> 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 world because you have people with law degrees bumping up into, you know, high school dropouts. And, and then I started, and then the other thing I really, well, the, the way I sold the show, it's funny. I'm working on a pitch now. Pitching for streaming is so much more complicated because you can't just go like, oh, then there'll be a legal case, right? I mean, when you have a, um, uh, I do have another project, which is a, a procedural for network that we're trying to sell. And that will be an easy because it's like, here's the cool person. Here's the world. I don't have to explain to you every single episode where streaming you kind of do because it's so character driven. So the pitch mm. was, um, you know, in answer to my mother's question, one of the reasons that there weren't shows about juvenile justice is well, for one, people thought it'd be sad because it's kids in jeopardy. And I'm like, it's not going to be sad. These people are irreverent. They have gallows humor. They're witty. They're awesome. You also, because they're minors, you do need to have an in, a trustworthy in to get the stories because those stories are normally pretty closed because the, the, the litigants are under 18. So I was like, okay, I got that with my mom. Um, and then, and then the way I, you know, I basically said here, and my eldest brother, who now I'm super, super, super close to, but he dealt drugs in high school, or he was a bit of, you know, ended up going to law school himself. <laughs> yes, it worked out. <laughs> you know, I it was like the preacher's, the preacher's um, kid syndrome. So I would watch my mother in her robe deal with kids from the bench, and she was wise and calm and great. And then as she would take her robe off, she'd go like, that guy, your brother. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, when you're a kid. And I was like, well, that's funny. And then my last part was, you know, we hear a lot about we female trailblazers, but I am the daughter of a trailblazer. And I was like, what mm -hmm. if you had me with a hard ass mom? Like, and I was like, oh, and that's time. So it's, it was, it was riffing on that. It was riffing on being confident in the world, coming home, uh, unresolved stuff. Now cut to, um, I, I had initially these two writers that were men, although that's not seminal, but it kind of is. <laughs> and I worked for about, this because I worked for about four months with them and I was still like, I hope you like it. And I was like, <laughs> and then, it, they didn't work out. I had four days left on my con. Four days. I mean, I had already moved on. I had read another pilot that I liked. And then because that was the moment of the reshuffle, uh, Fox said, hey, there's this uh, writer, Barbara Hall, and her pilot didn't go. And if we throw, and I literally didn't spend, I just was like, oh, nothing's going to happen. And she, in three days, turned this thing around. And I was like, fuck. And I always, you know, I keep using this metaphor of, um, gestation, but, you know, having, being a mom, I, I always say this in development, like, is there a heartbeat? Like, even if it's a faint heartbeat, mm -hmm. and sometimes there's not, mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't come together, but I read Barbara's three-day-old baby, and I was like, that's a show. So then we did it. But the other great thing about, the great thing about shooting the pilot, Brad, my husband Brad uh, directed it, which meant he was essentially directing his mother-in-law, which was done. <laughs> but we were, it was, it was a presentation, it was only 17 minutes, very under the radar, which is the way I like to work. They were much more high profile, but we never thought we'd go. I was just like, oh, I'm just happy to do it and I'm learning a lot. 
but we had so much freedom because nobody um, paid attention to us. Mm. Wow. Wait, now, you said it was 17 minutes? Yeah, we got money for a, a presentation, which was very unusual. Now I think, yeah, they do do sizzles and stuff like that. But at that point, it was like, what's a presentation? It's like a pilot, but not as good. Um, but it's based, so we had to show off, you know, some basic scenes that we liked and get the vibe of it. Um, and, you know, when time came on, I mean, it was like, oh, now it's for reals. I mean, now it's actually me talking to Tyne and it became... You know, right. that's the thing. It's screen screenplays are not novels. You know, they just lay there until somebody breathes life into them. And Tyne and I immediately were like, oh, we want to be together. We want to do this. You know, what I what I love so much about that, I mean, I love I love the family background and that you wrote what you knew. And, you know, writers are so often encouraged to do that and I know with my husband who you know who's a writer um his the 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 strongest pitches he's ever had or when he can go into a room and say you know this was my personal experience for sure um so I love I love that part of the story and I I love that anybody listening you know can can be encouraged to do that you know right from what you know but what I really love is that you said that it it you had the knowledge and maybe the confidence from the Actors Collective that you had done for all those years in your 20s. Um, just because I think that even though you were digging it and were like a funky artist and not, you know, sort of judging what you were doing, I think there are a lot of people who would be in like a, you know, I, I'm assuming there wasn't a lot of money in your Actors Collective and would be in something like that and say like, this isn't, you know, enough, or this isn't good enough, or we're not making enough money, or we're not, and sort of judge what they're doing. But, but what I love is, is how the pieces all fit together, you know, and that you were, you were not only, I'm sure making great theater, but you were also learning and training and growing and um, learning how to work with other people and learning how to put a show together and all that. I, I just think, I think that's so important to remember, especially for people that are in their early 20s and late 20s or whatever age when they're, you know, that that it's all part of the process. Well, it's also a home base, you know. I mean, I get very nervous when I don't have a home base, you know. Um, Judging Amy mm -hmm. was my home base for six years. Like, I, 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 I mean, so, so you know, it's like the, I have buddies that work in the Chicago theater thing and that's still their home. Meaning somebody's, you know, these are my artists, my artist family, mm -hmm. you know, and they'll tell me bullshit, frankly, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, if I, <laughs> and then Brad became, you know, I think in terms of the kind of um, moral imperative as an actor, and I mean that in a really loose way, I don't mean that in an evangelical Christian way, but why are you doing what you're doing? What are you putting out in the world? And now that things get amplified like that, um, being very cognizant, not in a way that'll shut down your artistry, but that you can stand with yourself and your choices. <clears throat> and, you know, I remember years ago after when Colin was before I had, we had kids, but I was married to Brad and Columbine, you know, I was like, fuck. And I remember looking at the TV and saying, okay, now is now the time that we, you know, we throw ourselves into making the world a safer place. I mean, is, is being in Hollywood and doing what we do a lark or, you know, and, and, and he said what I believe too. He said, no, it means we take responsibility for every single choice that we put out there and mm -hmm. make sure that 
you're putting out there is part of making the world a better place. And, you know, I had it the other day. I mean, I was talking about this script that, I mean, it's fine, you know, but there was this one, I mean, literally it's ironic that, cause it's like, then she picks up a gun. I was like, this woman would not have a gun. And then the, the, uh, the uh, producer was funny. He's like, oh, you caught the network note. It's like, we want to make sure she's a threat. I was like, I know, but the gun, first of all, it's lazy storytelling, you know? And it's like, yeah, that totally let's make her a threat. I think she's terrifying at that point, but um how about, how about less guns, like in general, in stories, in the world? <laughs> um, but I think it's, I think it's, and, and I, you know, and that's what Cornerstone is still like the North Star in terms of art and activism and, but, but not in a soapboxy way, in a way that, you know, in the way that we're just talking a lot in this culture right now of like, in stuff that Ava DuVernay and Shonda, it's like the more voices, I mean, we worked with like, you know, coal miners, and we worked with like out of work, late day laborers, and was not. It wasn't like, oh, I'm helping others. It's like, are you kidding? It's like, like I have. <laughs> we had uh, we did this production of the Oristaya, you know, small, small little known work, <laughs> and we were <laughs> in the reservation, which was we were you know in the deserts of Nevada. And it, long story short, but we had, I played Clytemnestra, which also was like the one of the joys of my life. And we had this chorus of Paiute boy, young boys, like 11 or 12. Um, and there was this kid, Ricky Whitefeather, who was in the show. And I remember um, standing there, we were backstage and there was some, you know, I don't know, like Orestes was saying something or other. And I remember Ricky saying in that way that, honest people do he said um he said oh this is the boring part of the play and i was about to go like no it's very important and i was like it is the fucking boring part of the play and i said no i was like i feel like that part is a little boring you know so it's like does Aeschylus go does it still live you know when you're not just doing it to theater goers that pay you know two thousand dollars at lincoln center um is it a story mm -hmm. is it an accessible story and we were all about accessibility and I still am you know and as obscure as the stuff that I'm doing it's like I, I want it to be populist I mean I'm a I'm a communist at heart <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm a mind. terrible movie star I am a terrible movie star it's like when you hold this bag and, <laughs> money, and I'm like no I feel like a pimp it's like ah shit that's what all the other girls are doing <laughs> I'm just terrible at that part I've gotten a little better but <laughs> no, I I love that you're terrible at that part. <laughs> it sounds like you're I perfect. I mean, I, I think this is what I think this is what people need to hear, especially now. Um, it reminds me a little bit of we had a a discussion in my class, and we were talking about um, uh, turning what is a classic story. And how do we turn classics into new classics? And it was actually a guest from our podcast that was visiting our um, my class. And he mentioned that. And I thought it was such an interesting, and it kind of reminds me of what you said. You know, like, does this hold water for the people that are listening to this today? Like, is this something that can touch them? And if it is, great. And if it's not, how are we making this accessible to where we are right now in the times that we're in? And um and it, it just sounds like that's what you do with everything that you do. And that is such an important way uh, to appro approach your, your work and your artistry. And I think a lot of people are going to really be grateful to hear that. So thank well, you. <laughs> you. No, and it's, it's also like, um, 
And again, this is where the the kind of archetypal language um, of being a religion major, which, you know, basically like humans are pretty, we're complex and we're very simple, right? We're complex because we're all, because our, we have these computers, which is our brains that don't always go with these body. It's like, we're sort of a funny species. Mm -hmm. in that way. <laughs> the, archetype, um, the archetype, which is like, what is, and that is really what I ask my characters it's like what is joy what is release what is heaven you know what is terrible you know like very simple questions and it's when i get that then it's like oh okay like i i did this run on um goliath i was the baddie on goliath and and i loved it i loved the part but i was like why is she doing what she's doing honestly and the writer was like oh, i think she wants like money and power and i'm like I don't think so. Like, I don't know. I, I, that doesn't make me that much. But, and then it, and I said, no, I think it has to do with her relationship with her brother. I think he is the sun and the moon. And when, and who's played by Dennis Quaid. And it's like, if that's, we, if that's good, I'm all good. And if that's, it's like a child, if that's wrong, I go crazy, you know? And I just started riffing on that and it bloomed. It just, I was like, oh, cool. So the basic why, you know, um, and I also think money, money and power is sort of like, it's a stand in for love or, you know, safety, or, I mean, you look at our outgoing president as my, I mean, there's a million things to say about that, but as my Anne Lamott, you know, favorite writers, she said this thing very early on in his presidency that I thought was so compassionate and true. She said, you know, he shows no evidence of ever having been loved. Mm. I all of this bizarre and, and increasingly bizarre behavior is because he didn't has never had that sated, sated feeling of being well loved. So that's the kind of root stuff I love to ask my characters, like, where do you feel loved? Where do you feel safe? You know? Yeah. Well, that's I'm, such I'm, a powerful place to come from, the place yeah. of love, because it gives you more, it gives you more vulnerability because to love so deeply is something that can be lost. And that is, you know, and I think that's, it's, it, I think oftentimes we go to that other extreme of thinking the vulnerable side is um, the emotions of sadness or fear, all that. No, it's, it's when you're really deeply loving and that's when the kernels of truth come out that are just so fascinating to watch. And I do think you feel that when you're looking at somebody perform it, you feel if they're approaching their character in that way. I, I think that really radiates on the screen. So I'm I'm glad that you said that, Camille, and I'm glad that you that you talked about that, Amy, because that was going to be one of our questions for you about sort of how how you approach characters. Um, and sadly, we're out of time, so you you hit that for us. So thank you. Um, we, as I think you might know, we always end our podcast by asking our guests if they could share with us, since our podcast is uh, as much about LA really as it is about acting. Well, partially, you know, a little bit about LA, mostly about acting. But anyway, um, if there's what we call an LAism that you can share, something that you have noticed is unique to Los Angeles. Well, this is really simple, and it may not be only in LA. But coming from the East Coast, where we talk about like, you know, taking um, taking I ninety five, taking I ninety three, 
the idea of the 405, the 101, <laughs> I was like, it's so honorific. Like, it's so, like, dignified freeways in a way that I was like, wow. So now I totally do it, and I don't think about it. But for years, I was like, the 405? Like, no, you go on 405. <laughs> <laughs> the four so I really like that. I feel like it honors our freeways as the lifeblood that they are. Um, I, also, I also like, I don't know, this isn't an ism, but, you know, we, I live in, I've lived in Encino in the Valley for a long time. And um, because of quarantine, we get out all the time. And my, my son and I are mountain bikers. Now I, so there's dirt Mulholland, right? Which is basically the idea that you, there's all these freeways and other five minutes from my house, which is very impacted. I don't live in the country. You can get on a, a spine of a mountain range, the Santa Monica mm. mountain. Conservatory. I've been upset. My father was in conservation. Well, there's this guy, Marvin Browd, B-R-A-U-D-E. And he you cannot imagine how expensive, how much land this land is worth, but it, it's sort of like how Central Park saves New York. Go to the Santa Monica Mountains. I now yeah. mountain bike to the beach, and it doesn't wow. take that long. So you have to, yeah, I mean, you have to be a badass wow. and get up the mountain. But once you're up the mountain, then you just kind of ride along and look down east side, west side, all around drop down to Panga. It's blown my mind. It's been such a gift of quarantine. Um, yeah. And that, when I say LA is surprising, that like when I'm out in the world, it's like, you're raising your kids in Hollywood. I was like, what do you mean? Do you think we live like at Man Chinese? Like, first of all, we live in suburbia. Second of all, nature is like a spit away. It's, it's just, there's yeah. so much nature. It's, it's such a, I've always loved that about, about the city. I'm so glad that you said that because I do think it's it's so many people's um, so many people think that LA is not that and it, it sometimes it takes a little time to find that part so you know hopefully you've helped somebody find it faster. Amy, thank you so much for being here with us today. This is this has been really inspiring for me and I know it will be for others too. Really appreciate it. Thank you for asking and thank you for doing this. What a, what a wonderful idea. And yeah, just I love this conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Speak LA, the podcast. We want to be able to bring you more episodes like this one, but we can only do that with your support. So please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to Speak LA, the podcast. For more information on Speak LA, go to ispeakla.com. This episode of Speak LA, the podcast was sponsored by Actors Connection. Actors Connection offers free resources, including valuable online programs. For more information, go to actorsconnection.com and sign up for their e-blast today. Our sound engineer is the very talented Dan Leonard of homevoiceoverstudio.com. My name is Jen Jostin. And I'm Camille Thornton-Alson, and we are the founders of Speak LA. You can find us at ispeakla.com. See you next time.